Welcome to Counterspin, your weekly look behind the headlines. I'm Janine Jackson. This week on Counterspin, when disastrous things happen, like the U.S. invasion of Iraq or the Supreme Court waving away of basic human rights, the undercurrent of a lot of news media is, why didn't we see this coming? How could we all have missed the signs? It's, to use a maybe overused term, gaslighting, in which elite news media spin a tale that everyone, all of some presumed us, were blindsided by, in this case, a John Roberts-led Supreme Court gutting multiple legally and societally established precedents, rules we thought we were living by. Clarence Thomas is an obvious factor in today's court, as is Samuel Alito. But the man that ABC News told viewers, quote, is generally seen as a mensch, close quote, not to mention a, quote, pretty darn good-looking guy, close quote, is at the center of the web. So let's go back to July 2005, when the nomination of John Roberts to the Supreme Court was just one day old. Counterspin Steve Rendell and I hosted a discussion with journalist Adele Stan, who'd just written a piece called Meet John Roberts for the American Prospect, and Elliot Mintzberg, then legal director for the group People for the American Way. We'll hear that conversation again today. Also on the show, former New York Times reporter James Risen wrote an op-ed for the paper in 2020 in which he said that he thought that governments, he was talking about Bolsonaro in Brazil as well as Donald Trump, were testing unprecedented measures to silence and intimidate journalists and that they, quote, seem to have decided to experiment with such draconian anti-press tactics by trying them out first on aggressive and disagreeable figures, close quote. He was referring to preeminently WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange, who may now be extradited to the United States, where he stands accused of violating the Espionage Act of 1917. If you haven't heard much lately about the case and its implications, that might be indication that the experiment Risen refers to is working. Researcher and journalist Chip Gibbons is policy director at Defending Rights and Dissent. He'll bring us the latest on Assange and why it matters. That's coming up. You're listening to Counterspin, brought to you each week by the Media Watch Group FAIR. The Lonely Chief, How John Roberts Lost Control of the Court. That was the plaintive headline of Politico's June 25th report explaining that Roberts, along with his middle-of-the-road approach on abortion, would likely be a casualty of the court's Dobbs versus Jackson's women's health ruling. In July of 2005, on the occasion of Roberts' nomination to the court, Counterspin host Steve Rendell and I spoke with journalist Adele Stan and with People for the American Ways Elliot Mintzberg about what was known then about Roberts' record and what he might mean for the court. We're going to start with my introduction. 
Many in the news media seem to breathe a sigh of relief at the news that George Bush was nominating conservative Washington insider John Roberts to the Supreme Court. And not just the folks you'd expect, like Britt Hume at Fox News, who shared a chuckle with congressional correspondent Brian Wilson and White House reporter Carl Cameron when he noted that Bush had named a white male, quote, just like all of us, close quote. Well, even while admitting that Roberts' record is sketchy on some issues, many mainstream reporters seem to emphasize the reassurance that he is not a right-wing trench dweller, like some others who were thought to be on Bush's short list of prospective nominees. New York Times Supreme Court reporter Linda Greenhouse assured readers that Roberts was someone deeply anchored in the trajectory of modern constitutional law. That's as opposed to someone who felt himself on the sidelines throwing brickbats or who felt called to a mission to change the status quo. Our guests think there's more to the story and point to some troubling signs in Robert's record that warrant serious scrutiny. We're joined now by telephone by Elliot Mintzberg, the legal director of People for the American Way, and by journalist Adele Stan, author of the article Meet John Roberts for the American Prospect Online. Welcome to Counterspin, both of you. Pleasure to be here. Good to be here. Well, Elliot Mintzberg, let me start with you. In that July 20th New York Times piece, Linda Greenhouse emphasized no flame-throwing articles or speeches, no judicial opinions that threaten established precedent, no visible hard edges. There have been some exceptions, and of course the story is still growing, but I wonder what your general reaction is to this first wave of response, which seems to be kind of, phew, what a, what a relief he's not so bad. I think it does underemphasize the very serious concerns that have been raised. Roberts is known well to reporters who cover the Supreme Court as, a, as, a, as an excellent advocate, someone who makes his legal points well. But if you look carefully at his record, there are a number of very troubling concerns. Probably the two that top the list are his participation as the top-ranking political deputy in the Solicitor General's office in a case uh, when uh, in, during the Bush one administration that didn't really even concern Roe versus Wade, where he wrote in the brief that Roe versus Wade is wrong and should be overturned. I think that's a serious, serious subject of concern. Second, as a judge on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, there was a case before the court that had to do with the constitutionality of the Endangered Species Act as applied to a development in California. The three judges who heard the case originally agreed that it should apply. All nine judges on the circuit were asked to reconsider. Seven of the nine of them agreed not to reconsider it, including some very conservative Republican appointees. Roberts was one of the only two who said, let's take another look at that, and strongly suggested he had serious doubts about the ability of Congress to pass that kind of law, and that kind of legal philosophy could seriously endanger not just the environment, but the ability of Congress to pass all sorts of laws protecting the environment, health, safety, and civil rights. So those two aspects of his record alone raised very serious concern. Adele Stan, Elliot Mintzberg just mentioned John Roberts' record on Roe versus Wade. In your American Prospect Online piece, Meet John Roberts, you wrote about that and you further elaborated with some information that might give us an even greater insight into John Roberts' views on privacy and reproductive rights. Well, I mean, of course, I mentioned that piece and, and not with the sage wisdom of, of Elliot because I, I am not a lawyer or a legal, legal expert, but of course his, uh, 
his writings uh, that pulled in uh, Roe v. Wade and his assertion that it should be overturned in a case that had nothing to do directly with Roe v. Wade did, you know, that set up a red flag for me. But at least as troubling to me is the amicus brief that he filed on behalf of the government in support of the group Operation Rescue, which those of us in the trench wars of the 80s and 90s to um, you know preserve a woman's right to choose know as a very kind of frightening foe. And this was not um, a case in which the government truly had a dog in the fight, which is not to say that the government doesn't often file amicus briefs. But uh, given the controversial nature of this group, it just seems to me that it had to have um, been an act of someone's conscience, you know, to, to, to prompt them to file this. Well, that uh, involvement in the Operation Rescue case certainly has not been appearing in the context of every article in which Robert's view on Roe v. Wade has been mentioned. Um, as that would sort of complicate that story a little bit, don't you think? I would think it, I, I would certainly think it should, but what you do hear from Robert's proponents is that, well, he's a good lawyer and he knows how to represent his clients and he has represented clients of different, you know, views and so he was just doing his job on behalf of the Bush 1 administration when he, you know, filed these briefs on behalf of his client, you know, the Bush administration, the U.S. government. I would assert that, you know, we're hearing a lot of things about his character being quite sterling, and I don't have any reason to doubt that. You know, but uh, people just you know, talk about what a great guy he is, and he's a man of integrity. And I find it very difficult that someone of that level of integrity would embrace something that uh, fundamental to one's personal philosophy if he disagreed with it. Well, something that keeps coming up in this coverage is the idea of borking, the possibility that that uh, Roberts or any other nominee might be borked. Elliot Mintzberg, what do you make of the way the history of Bork's rejection is being presented here? Well, I think it's clearly a revisionist history because what happened with Robert Bork is just what should have happened. His views, his philosophy, his record was examined extremely carefully. And then his hearings, in a lot of ways, became almost a, a nationwide seminar on the Constitution, what it does mean, what it should mean, and what, unfortunately, Robert Bork wanted it to mean, which would have taken away constitutional rights of every American. Uh, in that sense, it's become an under deserved pejorative, but we think that, uh, that 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 kind of work is critical on every nominee, even more so on someone like Roberts, who has uh, such a, uh, a very short um, uh, record on the Court of Appeals. Which is said to be pretty partial, uh, that short record, to the executive branch. And we're in a situation now where so much power is being consolidated uh, into the executive branch and just powers being drawn or attempts to draw powers away from the judicial branch in the House of Representatives has passed legislation that's clearly unconstitutional that would uh, prohibit the, um, the federal courts from striking the words under God out of the, uh, out of the Pledge of Allegiance. Uh, you know, they're basically prescribing what courts can and cannot act on. Uh, that, I mean, it's, it's, 
when you combine a, a mind like Robert's with that trend that is already afoot, that's what I find rather frightening. Well, we're talking about media's kind of short memory or distorted memory and how that's affecting the coverage of this Robert story. Some other media uh, phenomena, media wisdom has been pretty revealing on this. There's an ABC online site called The Note. It's a kind of a place where media elites talk to themselves. And we found this comment from there pretty revealing. The factor we think most likely, they say, on the note to ensure John Roberts' confirmation is that the Washington establishment and the media establishment know him and like him. Do not underestimate how hard it will be for Democrats to tar a potential nominee who has given working Washington journalists his cell phone number and who is generally seen as a mensch. Uh, not quite sure what you can do with that, but let's get your response, Elliot Mintzberg, to this notion. Of- I, I, I have seen the same thing, and I find it very disturbing to tell you the truth, because whether you're on the Supreme Court shouldn't depend on how many people you give your phone number to, but what your philosophy as a judge will be and what your effect will be on the rights of the American people. And I'm frankly very hopeful as time goes on and as we do the searching examination we need to do, that people will, will rise above that and look at his record and whether he's willing to answer critical questions before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Your reaction then, Adele Stan, to this uh, media wisdom on Roberts? Well, I mean, you know, I think that it is conventional wisdom, and I think that it is, I mean, what they're talking about is powerful in the Washington establishment. It is a clubby place. But, you know, power is often just the perception of power. And if Democrats accede to that, oh, my gosh, gosh, we can't go against this guy because everybody likes him, especially the press, and then the press will jump all over us. Well, I mean, then that just makes it happen. But if they put up some resistance, that becomes an interesting story. And I think it's a story that can be, you know, that can be won and that can be fought well. I mean, a a new uh, poll just released today, I believe, an AP poll said most Americans want to know what this guy's opinions on abortion are and that think they should, that that should be discussed, you know. So I think it's one of these things where if you can just break out of the box, it could be a whole different ballgame. Well, besides the arrogance and the sort of elitism of the note's message here, I'd like to zero in on one part of the passage where the note seems to suggest that any sort of criticism by the Democrats would be a tarring of the nominee. Well, yeah, that is really troubling. And see, and this is, and this is something, well, because that is what the right will do is accuse the Dems of doing. And it's especially insulating. And I've gotten in a already a, a lot of hate mail on asserting this, and I assert this as a Roman Catholic, it is insulating that he is a Roman Catholic, because the charge of anti-Catholicism is one that is often trotted out um, when you challenge someone um, on the right who is a Catholic, and you cha- challenge them on legitimate ideological grounds, it somehow becomes a challenge of their religion. And um, there are people on the right who will do that. And I really think it's important that the Catholic senators take the lead on this for just that reason. So you, you seem to be saying that although the Washington Post is saying Democrats should resign themselves to the fact that they can't stop it, you think there's still, there's still room for intervention here and, and something could change. I think that's true. I think that, you know, every time you accept 
the the focus groups and the and 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 this the conventional wisdom, you just resign yourself to the predictable, and the predictable becomes more predictable. Things are very uncertain and unstable right now, and that can be played to an advantage. And I think that the American people are really beginning to get sick of of all of this, and they just would like some reasonable choices. And I think that it would behoove Democrats, you know. To, to err on the side of reason and not defeatism. We've been speaking with Adele Stan. You can read her article, Meet John Roberts, at the American Prospects online site, prospect.org. She also authors the blog, addystan.com, a breakaway republic of the mind. We also spoke with Elliot Mintzberg, legal director of People for the American Way. You can find them on the web at pfaw.org. That was Adele Stan and Elliot Minsberg speaking with me and Steve Rendell back in July of 2005, 17 years ago, yet it all feels so fresh. If you've been following the case of Julian Assange, the WikiLeaks founder whose revelations about U.S. wars and war crimes outlets like the New York Times published to great acclaim, you know that you haven't been following it in, for example, the New York Times. Major U.S. outlets' interest in Assange's prosecution is hard to detect, as if they had no stake in a case which is not at bottom only about whether individuals can leak classified information, but whether journalists can publish that information at all. And it's as if their readers had no stake in that decision either. Joining us now with the latest is researcher and journalist Chip Gibbons. He's policy director of the group Defending Rights and Dissent. He joins us by phone from Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Counterspin, Chip Gibbons. Always a privilege to be on your program. It is one of the most informative programs we have. And unfortunately, the number of quality, hard-hitting, journalistic programs that cover these issues dwindles sort of more and more every year. So you are a lifesaver for our republic. Thank you. Thank you very much. And this really is a case where uh, it's, it's shocking, not just the way that media are not giving it the attention that it might deserve, but in particular, the way that journalists who are themselves implicated, it's part of, it it, it affects them, you know, Uh, so the lack of interest or the kind of evident desire to sort of box off Julian Assange as not our kind uh, is is deeply disturbing. But I've asked you here to give us kind of the latest on the case. What's going on? Yeah, I'll, I'll just note that for some of the appellate hearings in the UK, I was the credentialed correspondent for Jacobin. So I was there covering it. I joined kind of late, but Pretty Patel has agreed to sign an extradition request for Julian Assange. You had a district level trial of sorts, hearing, whatever you want to call it, in the UK, where the British Crown Prosecution Service at cost to the UK taxpayer, represented the US Department of Justice on their extradition request. And then Assange, not paid for by the British taxpayer, not backed by the Department of Justice, obviously, put up his own defense as to why he should not have been extradited. And they raised all of the obvious issues, press freedoms, the political questions exception to extradition. And they had big experts come in like Daniel Ellsberg, Carrie Scheichman, perhaps the, the biggest expert on the Espionage Act in the country. And the judge rejected 
all of those press freedom claims, but decided that if Julian Assange was extradited to the U.S., it would be oppressive given his mental health. And then the U.S. came in and offered all of these assurances, particular prison policies loomed very heavily in the decision. So the U.S. gave assurances that had so many holes in them, you could drive your car full, and not just a car, a big truck. You could drive a big truck through these holes. But on top of that, even in the best-case scenario insurances they were offering, they were talking about Julian Assange won't be in solitary confinement. He'll just be in administrative segregation held for, I think, 22 hours a day at Alexandria Detention Center, a jail we're very familiar with because Chelsea Manning has been in there. Jeffrey Sterling has been in there. Daniel Hale has been in there. And the description they gave under the United Nations minimum standards for treatment of prisoners, the Mandela rules, Nelson Mandela rules, constituted cruel, degrading treatment and possibly torture. So even the best case assurance, you know, they were assuring the UK they were going to torture them. And a higher court vacated the lower court's decision because they found the U.S. so persuasive. The Supreme Court refused to hear it. And then we entered in this process where it went to Pretty Patel, who's the Home Secretary of the United Kingdom. It's all political, right? Yeah. But it was a more openly political as opposed to this sort of legal cloak of a political persecution. And, you know, we could make these kinds of the political arguments again. And defending rights in dissent has a very narrow mission. We're a U.S.-based group focused on the Bill of Rights in the U.S. But because of the implications of this, you know, we did something extraordinary for us. We submitted a letter to the Home Secretary outlining the case against extradition based on our 12 years of monitoring this case. We talked about how the NSA had put him in the manhunting database and encouraged countries to bring criminal charges against him. We talked about how the CIA had WikiLeaks declared a non-state hostile intelligence agency, a phrase they invented just to persecute WikiLeaks. And, you know, we outlined all of that. So now she's ruled he can be extradited. The UK government has said they would like to get him to the U.S. in six months. That's very unlikely to happen because now the Assange legal team can appeal on the issues around press freedom the original judge ruled against. So you're sort of restarting the appeals process if the courts agree to hear them. And then even after that, you have a final court of last resort in the European Court of Human Rights which is not part of the EU. I'm sure everyone's thinking Brexit. How can that happen? It's actually part of the Council of Europe. There's apparently a lot of European super governmental organizations, more than I as an American ever, <laughs> ever knew. Of. And it's interesting because obviously it's independent, but the Council of Europe has a commission of human rights who wrote Pretty Patel asking them not to extradite Assange because of the press freedom claims, which is, you know, the United Nations Working Group on Arbitrary Detention, the United Nations Special Rapporteur on Torture, every international human rights group, every U.S. civil liberties and press freedom group, they've all made this case. So it, it's not surprising that the Council of Europe behaves more like the U.N. than it does 
the U.S. Department of Justice and the sort of British security establishment. One interesting thing that's happening in the Congress right now that you and I want to discuss is that Representative Rashida Tlaib has introduced an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, Amendment 617, which would seriously amend the Espionage Act in a really comprehensive manner we've not seen before from other proposals, because it would both limit the scope of the Espionage Act so that it couldn't apply to members of the general public, with some specific exceptions, which would preclude prosecuting a publisher or a journalist. And also, and this is a thing that gets really controversial and really riles people up, but is what I've worked the most on, it also would give some due process protections to the Edward Snowdens and the Chelsea Mannings and the Daniel Ellsbergs of the world by forcing the government to have to prove specific intent to harm national security. Right now, the language is specific intent or reason to believe, and that sounds like a high burden. But what they say is they say, oh, this was classified. And, you know, you signed a statement that said, oh, you know, if you ever release classified information, the sky will fall. And then you released it. You had reason to believe. And then you're barred from talking about what you released and why you released it. So to force them to prove that specific intent, it would also give someone indicted under the Espionage Act sections that apply here the right to testify about the purpose of their disclosures. Dan Ellsberg famously was asked why did he release the Pentagon Papers, and the judge shut him down and did not allow him to answer. And more recently, with cases like drone whistleblower Daniel Hale, before the trial even begins, the prosecutor files a pretrial motion asking that Daniel Hale be blocked from mentioning his words, not mine, his good motives, and the judge granted it. So Daniel Hale, if he had gone to trial, could not have mentioned his good motives. So this is a really, I mean, it's a very wonky editing of U.S. criminal procedure in one particular criminal statute. And I think people's eyes rightfully glaze over with that. But I think people can see the purpose of that. I think you've made clear what the difference would be if that information were allowed to be included. It's a game changer, right? Because the government actually has to prove the whistleblower not just released the information, but did so intending to harm the U.S. I would remind people that Chelsea Manning, in her court-martial, was charged with both Espionage Act violations and aiding the enemy. And military court-martials are not known for being very respectful of due process. The military judge found her not guilty of aiding the enemy because there was a higher intent provision, and the government has to prove so much more. So the government would both have to prove actual espionage, this person would want to harm the country, and also they have to let them testify about why they did it. It's not a perfect solution to prevent these prosecutions, but it would remove the immense procedural hurdles that rob a whistleblower of any basic constitutional due process rights when charged with the Espionage Act and force the government to actually prove espionage, not whistleblowing. 
All right, then we're going to end it there. But just for now, we've been speaking with Chip Gibbons. He's policy director of the group Defending Rights and Dissent. And you can follow their work online at rightsanddissent.org. Chip Gibbons, thank you so much as ever for joining us this week on Counterspin. And that's it for Counterspin for this week. Counterspin is produced by FAIR, the national media watch group based in New York. The show is engineered by Alex Noyes. I'm Janine Jackson. Thanks for listening to Counterspin. Counterspin.